Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua 23, uh, where we will be for the entire morning pretty much. But uh, last week we kind of started, because I think chapters 22, 23, and 24 are all a conclusion to the book of Joshua, because over those three chapters, Joshua gives what amounts to three addresses to the people of Israel. And so last Sunday in Joshua 22, we saw a charge to the two and a half tribes that were going to settle on the other side of the Jordan River. And just as they had received the blessing of God through a commitment to faithful obedience, Joshua urged them to continue down that road, to continue to faithfully uh, be obedient by both loving and obeying all that God had called them to be, and to continue to receive the promises through that. But we also saw that the struggle with that almost began immediately as compromise begat compromise in the lives of those people. And Israel sought to correct the ship and really maintain unity around the call of God on their lives. Because true unity is only ever going to be built on the commands of God for His people. That they must submit to the Lordship of God in both word and deed. Because true unity demands the people submit to the call of God. Joshua 23 presents the second of the three final charges to the nation of Israel, but this time Joshua is going to focus on the importance of leadership for Israel because the faithfulness of the people of Israel was going to flow from the faithfulness of those leaders as they submitted to the call of God in their lives and their willingness to faithfully and fearlessly lead the people would lead to a commitment from the people of Israel to that call of God. And so what Joshua reminds them all of is that what God had done to bring them into the promised land and all of the faithfulness that God had used to bring them to this place was what God was going to require for the rest of their lives. And that the decisions that the leaders made about their faithfulness would set the stage for either everyone else's faithfulness or their unfaithfulness. Because the role of a leader is to sacrificially guide the people of God into the promises of God with fearless devotion to God, regardless of anything that the world has to offer in exchange. Because faithful leadership ultimately defines the future of the people of God. I just want to start reading in Joshua 23, 1. A long time afterward, we don't know how long uh, of a time we're talking about, but chronologically speaking, he just makes the statement that a long time after chapter 22, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so what I want you to see in this text is, number one this morning, remember what God has done so you will endure to see what God will do. Don't forget who brought you where you are. Now, I know that this may seem redundant because this is a recurring theme throughout the entire book of Joshua. 
Joshua's addresses always contain a charge to continually remember the work that God has done for them. And that's for two very important reasons that I see. First, it's because of what faith is. Faith is built on the record of what God has done. It isn't about you. It's always about God's missional movement throughout history. And because of that, it's only when we take our eyes off of God and put them on ourselves that we will begin the path to failure where the calling of God is concerned in our lives. And so the memory of what God has done is vital to staying faithful in the Christian life. I've seen so many leaders experience great success, some of them very quickly. And what I've noticed throughout my time is is that the quicker someone experiences success, the quicker they are to forget who brought them there. The quicker they are to believe their own hype. And this is not only true in ministry. This is a precept that is true in every facet of life. In Deuteronomy, God warned the nation of Israel, specifically in Deuteronomy 8, that once they had moved into the promised land, they would be tempted to look at all of the blessings that God would give them and take credit for themselves. And he says, this is the beginning of failure in your life. Faith is about what God does, not about what you do. It's not about how great you are. It's not about how talented you are. It's not about how hard you work. It's not about how much energy you've put in. It's not about you. It is always about the work of God. And because of that, the second reason that I think Joshua always puts this important, of the, the, he puts that important uh, focus on remembering the work of God is because we are quick to forget. We are quick to put our faith in other things. Namely, we're quick to put our faith in ourselves. As he tells them in Deuteronomy 8, he says, you're going to move into the promised land. You're going to experience great material gain. You're going to have your crops are going to be plentiful. Your cattle are going to be so great. You're going to have much money. You're going to have much precious metals. You're going to have great houses. And he says, and at that moment, there's going to be a great temptation to say, look at what my hands have done. I think this is the great temptation that we face in every generation. You look at your bank account, look at the money I have saved. You look at getting a promotion at work, look at the great work I have done. I deserve this. I've earned this. And that statement, the problem with it is that it terminates on itself. It does not take away from how hard you have worked, from how talented you are, from how great things you have accomplished to realize that even though it has taken effort on your part, none of it would have come to you if God had not declared it. Our God is sovereign and every blessing you have in your life is directly from his hand. And the problem comes when you say, well, what about my credit? I mean, some of you, that inner defense attorney that you have right there, you're looking back on a career that has taken you decades, years to build. You're looking at debt that took you years to get out of. You're looking at all of these things that you've done. You're like, well, God shouldn't have all the credit. That's the voice of idolatry in your mind. 
That's an ideal where you are seeking to take a little piece of God's glory and give it to yourself. Nothing can terminate on itself. It must go beyond the achievement to the God that brought the achievement into your life in the first place. The only reason I woke up this morning and was able to take a waking breath is because the hand of our sovereign Lord allowed it. Nothing in this world is ultimately yours. It all belongs to God. How do you maintain that? Psalm 37, starting in verse 3, the psalmist writes, he says, Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. There are four vital principles in verse three. First, he says, trust God. And then he doubles down on it later in the text. He says, do good. He says, dwell in the land that God gives. But then fourthly, he says, befriend faithfulness. That is the path to remembering God. You put an ever-present reminder through faith and action, seeking to put all of your effort into being faithful to God above absolutely everything else. And I love the original language of Psalm 37 and verse 3 where it says befriend faithfulness. That term for befriend is also a term for shepherding. In other words, it requires effort. You must shepherd your heart as a shepherd moves the sheep. But the difference is you move it towards faithfulness to God. It will not happen by accident. You have to move yourself toward faithfulness or you will forget why you are here in the first place. Because once you forget, all sorts of unfaithfulness will emerge from your life because you are ultimately then shepherding yourself towards unfaithfulness. Nobody wants to admit that that's what they're doing. But in our contextual language, he uses the term befriend instead of shepherding. Because befriending is about intimacy. It's about what you want. It's about what you chase after. It's about a relational equity that you are building. And he says, you better build that equity with faithfulness or else your heart will wander from the presence of God and you will move away and forget. Because once you begin to forget, and I've seen it so many times, that's when spiritual amnesia kicks in. And you will very quickly begin to seek a life of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency takes you, though, away from God. Godly dependency puts you in the presence of God. That's why Joshua says, remember the work of God, because it's that warning in Deuteronomy 8. You will look at your hands and say, look at what my hands have made. That is not the posture God wants you to live your life in. He wants you to live your life working and achieving and giving into this world. But then at the end of the day, the fruit that you receive in success, you look to him and you say, thank you, Lord. This is all from you. I don't care how many blisters are on your hands. I don't care how smart you think you are. I don't care how many hours you've worked. It is the hand of the Lord that allowed any of it to be fruitful at all. Yes. And he looks to the leaders of Israel and he says, if you're going to lead God's people, the leader must first lead himself through remembering the great works of God through the great word of God. That's why ultimately we must find contentment 
in the mission that God has called us on because He has called us to a singular focus of living the mission that God has put down through history. 1 Chronicles 16 starting in verse 23 is a great reminder in line with Joshua 23. Text says, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. There is no greater place to be than a mindset that is constantly thankful for the salvation of the Lord. Day to day. Are you more thankful for your salvation today than you were yesterday? Or are you more forgetful of your salvation today than you were yesterday? I've seen so many people, their gratitude towards God is not an uphill slope. It's a downhill of forgetfulness. The effects of your salvation bring a little less satisfaction today than they did yesterday. And tomorrow it will downgrade even further because you aren't putting the ever present reminder of what you were saved from and what you were saved to in front of your face. No, you are distracted by all of the woes and all of the achievements that this world has to offer you. And that is when you stop finding contentment in the mission that God has given. And that is when you begin to focus on yourself and the greatness that you think that you have achieved but he says declare the glory of God among the nations who do you think you are you don't deserve glory God does it is his marvelous works that are among all the peoples this is the mission that the people of God were brought into the promised land for and that is the mission that you were redeemed from your sin by the work of Jesus towards He died and he rose for that mission so that you could proclaim the salvation that he has accomplished for you and in you. Life is about his glory. Life is about his marvelous works or you don't understand the gospel to begin with. How quickly do we move away when we get accustomed to the blessings of God? We just assume them. Just begin to assume the blessings of God as though we deserve them. You look at your life and you say, I've earned this. I deserve this. My greatness has procured this. And you begin to praise self because you've sunk into an apathy towards the hand of God in your life. How quickly do we look for satisfaction in lesser identities and lesser missions? When we grow accustomed to the blessings of God in our lives. Because when you grow accustomed to them, you get bored with them. And it's when you get bored with the blessings of God in your life that you begin looking elsewhere. Because I'm used to the blessings of God, but maybe that will give me the excitement that I've been looking for. It's like a marriage. You've lulled yourself into just this normal everyday life and it's grown mundane and you think I need to find some excitement and sinfully you look outside of that relationship for the excitement that your soul is urging you towards will you do the same thing with your intimacy with God 
You get accustomed to it, you grow bored with it, and you say, maybe that thing or this thing is what's going to give me the satisfaction that I don't seem to be finding in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, how much do we want to show how valuable we are and how much this world can bring us the contentment we desire where God has disappointed us in the contentment that He has to offer? That is why we must always make it a pursuit to remember the work of God. When you think that you are incapable of forgetting, that is why I know you've already forgotten. When you look and you say, oh, I already remember. That brings with it the presupposition, I've been told this before. I'm like an eight-year-old that says, stop reminding me to clean my room. You look to the Word of God and you say, stop reminding me to love God. That is the moment that you will look elsewhere for your satisfaction because you've already forgotten. And that's when, in our culture, we begin to measure achievement in the wrong ways. Friends, I cannot tell you how important point two is for your life. Measure achievement through the lens of God's word and never look anywhere else. Read what verse six says. I love how contextual it is. There's nothing new under the sun. And even though this is thousands of years ago, he's speaking to the hearts of human beings. And you are no different than Israel. He says, therefore, verse six, because everything that I just said is what you need to do, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand of them. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this ground, excuse me, good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Make sure achievement in your life is measured through the lens of God's word because I got to be brutally honest with you because some of you are living in such foolish denial of the temptation that is set before you every single day of your life. The temptation to judge yourself by worldly standards is real. And that is where Satan will get a foothold in your life and bring a mountain of temptation before you. 
Joshua is so quick to remind these people of the standard by which God says they must judge themselves. And what is that standard? He looks to them and he says, you judge your life by the law of God that Moses gave you. Don't turn aside to the right hand. Don't turn aside to the left hand. You stay where the word of God would have you and be immovable. This is God's word, he says. This is the objective anchor by which you can judge success and failure in life. It first drives you to faith in Jesus because of your inability to perfect it. But it also reminds you of the faithfulness that God still desires of your life and how you can seek it through faith in his son. Joshua boils it down to two choices. And this is where you also overcomplicate your life. You are not that complicated. Just like Israel was not that complicated. He says, you got one of two choices in this life. There is no third option. This is not A, B, C, D. This is A, B, one or the other. You don't get another one. And you want to convince yourself every day, oh, I have a hundred choices that I could do with my life and go this way or that way. No, Joshua says you got two. The first one is in verse eight. He tells them, he says, choose to cling to God. He even cheats. He says, I'm giving you the right answer. He says, the right choice in life is to cling to God, is to hold fast to him, is to grab a hold of God, never move from his presence. But then in verse 12, he warns them against the second option. He says in verse 12 that they have the option to cling to the nations, the wicked nations of Canaan. He says, you will either cling to God or you will fall into sin because you're clinging to wickedness. He tells them, he says, don't cling to those nations. He says, continue to drive them out of the land because he warns them, if they cling to the wicked nations of Canaan, they will mix with them in marriage. He said, why is that important? This is a cultural warning to the nation of Israel. He's telling them, those people, the wicked Canaanites, they have built their lives on a foundation of rebellion against God by worshiping false gods, by going into wicked lifestyles, by doing everything to pursue the opposite of what God is calling Israel to cling to. And if Israel mixes with them in marriage, it is a statement about Israel because it is a statement about what they are attracted to. Think about this. Parents come to me frequently because your child is either dating an unbeliever or your child is getting married to an unbeliever. And you say, what do I do? And I'm a very simple man. I'm a very blunt man. I say, tell them to stop it. You stop that right now. You have no idea how often that works. My children, I tell them to stop it, don't you? You stop it, don't you? Because they know what's going to happen. The trick is, no matter how old they are, convince them of the pain, all right? But you ask that question in such a way as though the problem just happened. 
See, the problem didn't happen when they chose to mix with an unbeliever. The problem was built on whatever you cultivated in the atmosphere of their lifestyle that made them attracted to what unbelievers have to offer them in their lives. You've built a foundation and a lifestyle by which they look to what an unbeliever loves, what an unbeliever chases, what an unbeliever clings to, and they have already begun to build a lifestyle where through what they've seen you chase, what they've seen you find your identity in, what they've seen you pursue, and what they know the affection of your heart really wants, that they say, I want an unbeliever because I can continue continue in the lifestyle without having to repent of any of that. God looks to the nation of Israel and he says, don't mix with the Canaanites in marriage because mixing with the Canaanites in marriage makes a statement that they want what the Canaanites have. He doesn't say marriage is what's going to make you worship false gods. God brings in the assumption they're getting married to them because they're already worshiping the false gods. God takes that very seriously because mixing with them meant sinning against the only real God and they're chasing after the false versions. This is the warning of verse 13. They would lose the ability to drive them out if they did this. But he doesn't just stop there in verse 13. He says, no, for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But note this. He says, they shall be a snare and a trap for you. That's the first level of wickedness. Because it happens before you even know it, and you don't even realize it as soon as it happens. A snare and a trap are very similar. It's something that grabs a hold of you and stops progression. It's something that keeps you in a state of stagnancy so that you can later be killed by whatever predator put the trap there in the first place. But he continues it. He says you're going to be snared into it, but it's not as if you have no control over the choice of the matter. The snare happens because you enjoy it. Because you've already forgotten that the Lord is the one that brought you here. You've already developed the spiritual amnesia to what God has done in your life that you were supposed to worship him. You're chasing after those false gods. You're finding your identity in things that God has not called you to find your identity in. And you are already trapped as though you cannot move. But here's the problem. It goes to another level. Again, in verse 13, it becomes a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Note that it doesn't just stop with you being trapped. It ultimately begins to destroy you and abuse you and kill you. This is the whip to your sides. This is even if you can't see it, the damage is being done. But then he says something that's very dear to my heart because I wear glasses and that these are real, by the way. I wouldn't wear them if I didn't need a prescription. But when I go to the eye doctor and by God's grace, technology is developing to save me from the torture of the puff. If you wear glasses, you know about the puff, all right? You go there and you sit, and he tells me they're testing for something. I think it's voodoo, all right? How in the world could puffing air in my eyeball tell you anything? So I put my face in the mask thing. I'm certain it's going to grab a hold of me and kill me. 
And then he puffs, and I always wait for a second because I'm like wincing because I think a dart is coming. All right, he's going to take my eye out. And then, of course, they do the thing, this one or this one, this one or this one. And it's like seven different options. I don't know. I'm so terrified of failing the eye exam. And I won't realize it until I get home, and I'm like, I am blind. I cannot see through these lenses. Right? Is that just me? Right. Maybe I'm just filled with anxiety. I don't know. But when he says it's a thorn to your eyes, it's a word picture that should drive home just how severe this would be. A thorn actually being driven into your eye. And do you know what that word picture is meant to take you to? What he's saying is you will become blind to the things of God. You'll be blinded by your own unfaithfulness to where you won't even be able to see the degradation of your life. See, friends, the reality that you've got to deal with in your life is that when somebody comes to you and confronts you with clear sin, and I've had this happen, they come to you and they say, I'm seeing some unfaithfulness in your life, and this is going to destroy you if you're not careful. You're going to have an affair if you're not careful. If you don't flee from temptation, you're going to have some real serious sin in your life, and it's going to ruin your life. You've got to stop being so materialistic, because before you know it, your value is going to be in your bank account over the salvation that you've got from the Lord. And you look at people, and what happens is you don't say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for the accountability that you've brought into my life. I need to get right with God. I need to repent of this sin. No, you very quickly say, who do you think you are to judge me? You don't know me. You don't understand all the reasons that I have for the way that I'm being and acting. As soon as the excuses and the reasons are given, do you know what I know? I know you've already gone so far from the presence of God that the thorns are in your eyes and you are blind even to the power of the Spirit. Where there is no conviction, there is no Spirit. You see, friends, the temptation to disobey God is actually one that all of us know well. (laughs) If you don't think you struggle, you're already blind. If you think that you're above temptation, you are blind. If you're not struggling with temptation right now, guess what? It's around the corner. (laughs) It's going to happen. We don't call it the worship of Baal, though. We don't call it the worship of Molech. You know what we call it? We call it FOMO. If you don't know what that cute little acronym is, it means fear of missing out. See, we give ourselves opioids through acronyms that are cute rather than admitting the reality that we struggle with temptation to sin. But it's a very uncomfortable thing to say, oh, I'm struggling with temptation to sin. Instead, you cute it up and you're like, FOMO. (laughs) Just got this fear of missing out. Aren't I cute? No, that's sin. That's wickedness. There's nothing cute about it. Many a sinful and foolish identity has come from FOMO. You look to the world around you and they seem like they have something that you want in your life. No matter what it is, it is not anchored to God. So it is what a sinful identity is built on because you are chasing after the contentment that God says only comes from Him. You sit there night after night on social media looking at how good you think other people's lives are. 
Looking at how big you think other people's houses are. No matter how new you think other people's cars are. And you say, if I only had what they have. If I could only achieve the status that this person has. If I could only have the fame that that guy has. Every one of us do that at some point with something in life. And if you deny it, friends, you are in it. Israel did this in 1 Samuel 8. They gave in to FOMO by wanting a king. It isn't that wanting a king is bad. Look at what the text says. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to them, Behold, you are old. Samuel was the prophet. At that point, Samuel had been the judge of Israel. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like what? Like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, I don't know, but this is one of the texts of scripture. It makes me emotional. Because of what God says, this strikes at the very heart of God. He looks to Samuel and he says, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you. I pray that God never says this about me. He says, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The problem wasn't that they wanted a king. The problem was they already had one. The problem was that they already had the greatest king that they could have, and that was God himself. And that is why verse 7 is heartbreaking. I mean, imagine God, the creator, the one who saved you through his son, looking at the way that you are living your life, looking at all of the places that you are putting your affections, looking at all of the barren wastelands that you are looking for satisfaction and contentment. And God looks to the prophet and he says, don't be offended. They're not making a statement about you. They've rejected God. Don't pass over that too quickly. Because the rejection of God is what occurs every time you seek to find identity and what unbelievers find their identity in. Because you believe that that is the source of contentment more than life in and with God. That is why Jesus warns us in Luke 12, 15, because we don't chase Baal. Let's be honest, we don't chase Moloch. If you do, that's weird, and I'd love to talk to you about it. We may not have a share of polls, we have bank accounts. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, take care. Be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Yet, that is the singular temptation that I see so many of you either chasing because you want it or holding on to because you have it. 
And you don't define success and failure according to God's word. You define success and failure by your bank account or what your bank account can get you or what you want your bank account to get you. And if you think you aren't struggling with this sin, you are lying to yourself. This is the American God. It is a sneaky, false God that quickly consumes your worship. But so many of us define our lives by what we have or what we want rather than the God that has saved us. I don't care if it's a house, if it's a car, if it's a status, if it's a club. It's all material and none of it will survive your life. You know the factories these things come out of. They won't be around in a hundred years. You bathe this as though you're some type of philanthropist. You're like, but look at the good that I could do with money if I just had it all. Friend, that is materialism. You're trying to bathe it in some form of wicked discipleship that doesn't exist. Take inventory of where you find your identity, friend. This is what God is warning the nation of Israel against. This is the human condition. This is the temptation for every Christian. I mean, think about this. Think about this. You have Christ. You believe the word of God. You don't make it very long here if you don't. Ephesians 1 even says God has blessed us. Consider what it says. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Have you ever considered the ends of what that means? He's not saying that's where I'm going. He says I have that. I right now have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you're a follower of Jesus, so have you. And yet tonight, you will be on some form of social media. And you will say, I would be so much happier if I just had X. Or if I just looked like X. Or if I could just get X. Fill X with whatever your false God is, but whatever you are pursuing with all of your energy is what is your God. And yet God says, I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love the fact that I have the word of God and I deny the heresy of the prosperity gospel. Yet when I'm on my phone, I am the biggest believer in the prosperity gospel you have ever met in your life because I see what my life could be like materially speaking. And I'm tempted to say, God, haven't I been faithful enough? Haven't I been good enough to just have a little more? And I'm the biggest coveter you've ever met in your life. Can I just confess a sin right now? You know what coveting is? Coveting is really just, it's very simple. It's when I see what you have and I say, I deserve it more. And I believe I deserve it more than every one of you. (laughs) But here's the thing. So do you. We're together in this. You're no better than me. But you know what's happening? We don't realize it. But in those moments, we've rejected God as our king. We are measuring the worth of our lives 
by the wrong measurement. We've moved away from God's word. That is why Jesus warns in Mark 8, 38, that we can gain the whole world and yet still forfeit our own souls. Friend, it can consume you the way that Jesus is supposed to consume you. That's why number three, failure happens when the promises of God cease to be enough. Failure happens when the promises of God cease to be enough. Look in verse 14. I love the way that Joshua talks about death. It's way more poetic than I do. He says, now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land. He has given you. Real success only comes from God. That's a biblical principle. But the question must be asked, how do you define success? Not as though we're sitting in Sunday school and you're just wanting to give me the Christian Bible answer, but rather the truth of what you actually believe is seen by what commands your focus and your energy. I have a sign at the doorway of my house that reads, don't take life too seriously. No one gets out alive anyway. <laughs> I think that's what Joshua is telling the nation right there. But he just puts it, he says, I'm going the way of all the earth. You know what he means by that? He says, I'm about to die, but guess who's following? All of you. <laughs> you're all going to die. But the question is, is anything you're living for going to outlive this physical life and go into eternity. Hebrews 13.5 states that the follower of Jesus must keep his life from the love of money. But it's fascinating the way that he says it. The author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And then he quotes Joshua 1.5. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you've ever wondered where that comes from, it comes from Joshua 1.5. And so the author of Hebrews is making this connection, and I think this connection even goes into these farewell discourses of Joshua. The author of Hebrews looks to the New Testament church, and he's talking about material gain. He says, keep your life free from the love of money, but here's the deal. He's not just talking to people who have it. He's even talking to people who, and there are many of you in this room, you're like, money's not a problem for me. It would only be a problem if I had any. I'm broke, man. Money is not a problem, all right? But that's not what he's talking about. Because when he says, keep your life free from the love of money, he then goes on to, he says, be content with what you have. He's not saying, look at what you already have and never pursue anything else. 
Just be happy with what you have. Find your identity at the level that you are currently at because that is just as wicked as the pursuit. I've met so many people struggling in poverty and do you know what their hope is in? If I just had money. If I just had money. And I've seen people with more wealth than I could imagine having. I've met those people and I've sat with those people and their lives are defined if I just had a little more. It doesn't matter what your income level is. It's about where and what you find your identity in. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is he is saying that the only place you will ever find meaningful and objectively real contentment is the salvation that comes from God. Because it is sure. It is unfading. It is eternal. Joshua tells the leaders he's going to die and then he looks at them as if to say who's going to lead because the promises of God have never failed they will never fail he will never leave them he will never forsake them but the question was would they forsake God and the question is will you and you can answer that just ask yourself the question, where are you headed? What direction? What are you chasing? What are you finding your identity in? I mean, here's the deal. If I lost 50 pounds, I'd be healthier. But I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be happier. But so many of you, that's what you are consumed with. And I don't mean this to hurt your feelings. I mean it to hurt mine. What a pathetic God. What a pathetic identity that would be. What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? What are you chasing for status? What is it that defines your life? Where is it that if you got brutally honest with yourself, you are finding prestige in and believe that will make your life matter more than it matters right now? Because I got to be honest with you, your restless soul, and you've got it, will only ever find rest in God the nation of Israel bowed down and served false gods, they would provoke the anger of God because God is faithful to his covenants. It is always a question of my faithfulness. One vital key to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus absorbed that anger for me. I have been unfaithful and through faith though I have been restored to his covenant and my life has been changed to where I now have the ability to find my contentment in pursuing the things of God. That is the evidence for my faith but that is also why in 1 Timothy 6, 6 Paul writes to Pastor Timothy and he says godliness with contentment is great gain. Because the great question that God poses and supposes throughout all of Scripture is, will he be enough for you? Because it is only when he is that he is your God. So many of you are restless. You don't have to tell me. I know. If you were just honest in this moment, 
Friend, you would admit that you are pursuing contentment in something other than God. But what I can't answer for you is the answer of what are you chasing? But the warning I'll give you is that if you chase it too far, you will ultimately reveal that you don't have any real faith in Jesus at all. But the good news is God is calling you. He is saying, find contentment in the gospel and anchor yourself to it. Because that is great gain. A few application points this morning. First, put reminders of God's work all around you. When you get tired of the reminders, that is where you're giving in to the temptation. Secondly, pursue a mission of God's glory and salvation. Because that's the only one there is. Any other mission is going to take you off that path. Thirdly, measure achievement through submission to God. Are you submitted to him? Is that how you're defining success and failure? And then fourthly, define success through the gospel of Jesus and refuse to move.